Thank you for downloading this documentary on one from RTE Radio 1. For more information, visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one. This story starts with a door banged shut, keys locked, blinds drawn quickly, but more of that later. First go back to a different time, to 1988. There's a beloved only child and her quiet, petite, dark-haired mother. They lived alone in a little house on the side of a busy road. I think of the red-haired child. When she was was small and growing up, going to school. Fonsi Gillespie is an uncle of the red-haired girl and younger brother of her dark-haired mother. He's driving the four miles from his home to the graveyard in Killy Gordon, northeast Donegal. This is one of the places where the story ends. The remains of both victims of Sunday night shootings were removed from Sligo General Hospital here a short time ago. The funerals will take place in Ballybofay, County Donegal, tomorrow. But first, the beginning. The Renault car in which widow Annie Gillespie and her only child, 18-year-old Anne, met their tragic deaths was still parked outside Sligo General Hospital this evening. Dead people don't matter. She was 18 years of age and all her life ahead of her. And uh, she deserved more of a life than she got. Know. Patrick Maguire is Anne's other uncle. He is married to a sister of the dead mother, an aunt of the dead Anne. He sits by the window in the upstairs office of his tyre depot. The low light filters through the commercial blinds. Right opposite his business, across from the incessantly busy Donegal Road, is a line of dusty, terraced houses. The fifth one in line is painted grey. Well, I see the house where they lived for a long number of years. This is the house where Anne and her mother Annie lived. It's just exactly across the road from where we work. I would have saw them every day. Annie did cleaning work for us here in the business itself. And, uh, and I should have been travelling out to her mother's, at where, out near where we lived at home. She could have left out with me you know, at lunchtime and things like that. Anne's father died when she was three months old. Soon after that, her and her mother moved from a small farm outside Ballybuffet town to this little house on the outskirts of the town itself. A row of houses alone on the Donegal Road, surrounded by petrol stops and mechanics' garages the traffic constantly passing by, all driving in the direction of Sligo Town. Myself and the wife and our three children, accompanied by Annie and Anne, went to Sligo General Hospital to visit their mother, who was having a hip replacement. And we'd met earlier that day and discussed what time we should travel to Sligo at. We felt that the night was a better 
opportunity because the, the visitors will be there during the day and she'll probably have nobody there at night so we'd opted to go with just the night visiting hours so we, we got everybody loaded up and headed off for Sligo and we spent time visiting Mrs Lafferty. Sunday night, September the 18th, 1988. And while I was there that I observed John Gallagher going down and driving into the car park at the hospital. And he later drove out and headed on down and towards Sligo. And I was a wee bit apprehensive and I saw him all right, but later on I saw him drive back out the way again, so I took it that he had maybe been there looking for us and hadn't found us and he had, had gone home again, you know. So after a while we returned back to the ward where Mrs Lafferty was and I, I told all concerned that I'd observed Gallagher's car there earlier on. And there was no great notice taken, so we proceeded to leave the hospital altogether and we came out and... Um, and didn't really seem to get too concerned at that stage. Like, I mean, I, I suppose was guilty of putting them to ease the fact that I saw the car leave Sligo and head back in the direction of what I considered to be Balbuffet again. So probably they were beyond the false illusion that the danger had left again, you know. But that wasn't the case. Like, as we went to get into the car, he just drove up and he jammed. He drove up behind our, my car and he left that I had no way out. Like, he just jammed the car. The amount of people that was in the car, there was a bit of time involved getting everybody seated. <clears throat> my wife and our three children, Paul, Damien and Katrina, because of the crowd, Paul was sharing the front seat with, with his mother. And in the back, <coughs> Teresa had got into the back immediately behind me and the rest of the people were getting loaded in just. And um, Teresa was down syndrome and was, and was there just. And uh, I heard uh, <coughs> somebody scream, there's John Goller and he's a gun. And... Just everybody sort of hold the panic set on, like, and Trina, who was our daughter, she immediately ran back into the hospital. She'd been very close to the granny, and Trina would have been uh, 14, probably. Everybody started scrambling out of the car again then, like, and I remember Paul saying to the <clears throat> to his mother, like, Mum, it's all right, it's only, a, it's only a pellet gun, like, you know. So he, Della, who's my wife, she ran off, and the two boys followed her. And uh, I saw him leaving us to my left, and I looked around to my right, John Gallagher was standing with a gun covering the side of the car, like, and uh, he ordered Anne out of the car, and Anne, she just went to stare and said she wasn't getting out, and she locked the doors. And uh, he ordered me to open the door, and I said, Anne's not getting out of the car, she doesn't want to have anything to do with you. And uh, he sort of stepped back at that stage, and he swung around towards a light, a light standard where there was a light, and he bolted the gun, and I fired a shot up at the light. At that stage, I had stepped out of the car and went to stand position on the front door of the car. And he said to me, just, he says, you did me no favours this morning. There was a telephone call to our house that morning, around half nine or ten o'clock. And he, I answered the phone and he asked to get talking to Della, who was my wife. And uh, when I told Della that John Goller wanted to talk to her, she said she wanted to have nothing to do with him. And I duly told him that Della didn't want to talk to him. And that he had never used the telephone number before and not to use it again. That nobody there could do anything for him and forget about it, like, you know. So this is what he was more or less telling me that he was doing, shooting me for it. <laughs> and at that, they just took aim through the telecosic sights and pulled the trigger, and just, I heard a click, and nothing happened, like. And he, he was amazed as well as to why nothing had happened. So he just moved the gun slightly to one side and looked at me, just in frustration as to why I was still there, I suppose, like. And he, he bolted the gun after he found out that it had jammed. He just stepped backwards and he just fired a shot into the back of the car and he burst it. And he took another step around to the back of the car and uh, 
he fired a shot in through the back window, like, and it just went through Anne's, crown Anne's head, like, you know. And just after the shot through the back window, I could hear Annie saying, oh, you shot Anne, like, you know. And, and as I say, I, I, when I heard that, I realised there was no turning back, so I ran to get help, like, you know. And as I ran, he discharged a shot again, which I considered a shot after me, like, you know. But he, from there, he must have come round and he um, broke the side wound in the car and he fired another shot. He put three shots into Anne's neck and another shot went into Annie's face and Teresa, she was sitting there. When we found her, when I came back with the guards in the ambulance, Teresa was sitting there with a shattered glass and the blood all splattered over her. And her sitting beside the two dead women. Like, you know. Leopardsons. Yeah. Yes. Unreasonable, but that's it. Why do you hate Lifford? Oh, it's just because he came from there. Fancy is driving the main road from Lifford back home to Bally Buffet. It is early evening a week before his drive to the graveyard in Killygordon. He's been hearing things this year. So this evening, he drove into Lifford, the first time in a long time. But for now, Fonsi is driving the straight road back home. He starts to talk about that night, September the 18th, 1988. Patrick's wife rang as my sister Della. And she said that John Gallagher was over at Sligo Hospital and that he had... Dory and Anne, and she thought he had taken them in his car or something. So I was going to go to Sligo, and Anna convinced me to get my brother to go with me. So I went over to Stenard to pick him up. I was coming back. The guards stopped me, just there below the Villa Road of the barracks. And they told me that what it was the truth then. That is what the story. There's two guards there. A guard and a sergeant. And the, the guard, he's still talking kind of a man. He says they're both dead. And they asked me if Gallagher would know my car, and I said he probably would, so they said that I'd be better not to go over, that he was on his way from Sligo. And I could hear the reports on the, on the radio as he was coming over. There was a, a roadblock in Ballyshannon, and he drove through it and went up a one-way street and was leaving the patrol car behind. And then he came into Donegal Town and there's another roadblock there and he turned. But then the guys from Sligo direction were closing in on there, so he took a... He veered off the main road and towards what they call St. Ernest. That's where he went onto the pier and then drove eventually into the water. What were you thinking of? Doing that, just... I'm just that they were lying dead in the car in Sligo. The car stops. Fonsi pulls up to his house, in the countryside, two miles outside Bally Buffet. A modest, neat bungalow on an acre of land. 
Do this for a quiet person. I'm sure her heart was breaking for Anne, but she wouldn't go against her either. You know, Dudley went shopping down town, Anne went with her. Went to mass together. Practically everywhere together. Oh, they were near, nearly inseparable. The front room is quiet and very clean. Arranged on the polished cabinet are a pile of framed photographs. One has Anne Gillespie and her mother Annie, or Dodie, sitting close together, dressed up, heads almost touching and smiling at the unseen photographer. It is the picture that was reprinted in the newspapers when their deaths became public, taken at a wedding only a week before. Fancy sits in a high-backed chair, holding the photograph. Well, I was actually her godfather. Oh, she was a fine, she was a fine girl, now. She was growing up in the same time she was just till a child, you know. She certainly wasn't able to cope with the end, anyway. She had gone to teachers, things, and but didn't seem to be able to get any help. Fancy gets up from his chair and starts to rummage around the back of the cabinet. There, high up, lying on the back of a shelf is a worn jiffy bag. He takes it down, opens it. His eyes are wet. Inside is an old video cassette. The Marines from the Italians. Oh, we were talking about the Italians before, John. About... I haven't played this now in... Say seventeen years. A neighbour's wedding. Annie, her dodie as she is known to her family, and her daughter Anne Gillespie, and her boyfriend John Gallagher. After a three-year romance, Anne had tried to finish with him. That's dirty. But at this wedding, he's constantly next to the two, the young woman and the middle-aged one. Well, that's... That's Anne, I congratulate the bride and groom. They're out in a group, holding hands, Dodie, Anne and John, part of a ring of people dancing. Anne looks very pretty, in a dark cream dress and wavy auburn hair, but she never smiles. The photograph was taken one week before their deaths. The video was from that same night. That's Anne dancing now with a, an older friend. 
As you can see, she's not happy. Well, there she and her dancing was together now, but there's still no smiles. I think he always wanted to be top dog. Later, she dances with a young man. Gallagher is nowhere in sight. It is the only time she smiles. There's Anne now dancing with her neighbour, her next door neighbour. And they seem to be enjoying themselves. scenario that's where trouble started that was the beginning of the trouble there well I seemed to flare up at that stage the trouble was there already what did he do after that night the wedding I went up to Dodie Nan's house and got a knife and cut himself and smeared the blood over both of them and then he went down, the, he smashed the murder and went down town and threatened some of the young fellas on a minibus. That had been at the wedding? That had been at the wedding. Well, the guard said they could do nothing and I'd done something, but, but he'd done it. I never thought that would happen, but I was really worried now. Five days on from the wedding, Thursday evening. Anne came home early, was left home early from school, and he arrived into the house. and He ripped her, and Anne made a step into that effect. That night, the nuns from the school were in the little house on Donegal Road. So were the local guards, Anne's mother Dodie, and godfather Fonsi. Sister Anne was going to Donegal Town earlier that evening and she'd given Anne a lift up to the house and then coming back she, had, she called in but uh, the rape had taken place at that stage and the, the guards were there and we stayed on that night until about two o'clock and they were terrified of John Goller they said that he had a key like and he had a key like that's how you come in on Anne to start of that evening but uh, we offered to take them up here, but Dodie wouldn't hear television. She wouldn't want to leave her house for anybody. Closing the case this morning for the prosecution, Olive Buttermer told the jury that it had been accepted that Anne Gillespie and her mother died because of the activities of John Gallagher, but they had to decide if he was sane and had intent. Uh, she was to do her, her rape charges, which was more or less told that John Gallagher was in Connell's hospital and he'd be there for at least six months. So she felt that in six months that... Uh, he would probably have forgotten about the whole escapade and, you know, rather than do the trauma of a rape trial, she, she opted to, 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 to do what's her statement. She was more or less told, you know, that in six months' time that everybody would see it, but it's things in a different light and he would probably have, she would have moved on and got a chance to move on and that he would have done the same, like, you know. But that wasn't to be, like, you know. Responding for the defence, Paddy McEntee said that while John Gallagher was now a sane man, the thrust of the evidence was that on the night of the killings he was not sane. He said that Gallagher had been taking large doses of slimming tablets up to one week before the killings, and these had affected his mental state. 
That was on Thursday, but on, on Friday evening, I, I changed the lock. On the front door, the back door was okay. I thought they'd been a bit safer. And then we thought he was in, in St. Connell's Hospital at that time anyway. But on Saturday night, I seen him in, in, in St. Order. And I went up to the house afterwards. I expected to see him there, but he wasn't there. And I went to get in and I couldn't get in. The doors were all locked up. I had to go around the back door and knock to get in. Or barricaded in. They were terrified. But new locks couldn't stop what happened next. On the night of the killings when Gallagher went to the car park at Sligo General Hospital, he was on autopilot and totally out of control. Mr McEntee told the court that Gallagher had loved Anne Gillespie passionately and that the killings defied motive. He said the only logical conclusion the jury could come to was that on the night of the shootings, John Gallagher was mad. You know, we never ever could see any human being doing to another human being what he did like. He, uh, he executed the work on the night like shooting rats, like, you know. The trial had lasted seven days. After an absence of three and a half hours, the jury of five women and seven men returned their verdict. With a majority of ten to two, they found him guilty but insane on the two counts of murder. Mr Justice Johnston directed that he be held at the Central Mental Hospital in Dundrum until further order of the court. Anne was trying to get away from him at that stage. She had been trying for, for a while, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't have it that way. These seem to be the forgotten victims. That's right. He's up in the middle. Aye. Sit back too. The next day, Fonsi and his little granddaughter. driving through country lanes, wildflowers are in the hedgerow, getting deeper into the countryside. A copse of dark fir trees grows ever closer, back to the old homestead. We fixed up this house a bit for my mother, just about two years before Dodie Nan died. I enjoyed it. This is where I grew up with Dodie and other brothers and sisters. Fonsi is a quiet man. He has few words. But here, back in the place where he and his sister grew up, Words are easier for him. She seemed to be the one that everybody turned to when they wanted advice or whatever. Well, she seemed to be always there for us. I think I, I was probably small, a spoiled too. In fact, that night I went up to change the lock. As soon as I went in the door, she sent Anne up to the shop to get me a packet of tobacco. I've still got that packet in the empty packet like in the car there you keep it with you 
I stole there. That was, that was like, she had, she had to, you couldn't really do her a favour without her doing you one. And Anne too, I, I, wasn't, I was trying to say no, but Anne, she went on. <laughs> His grandchild still in the car, he walks towards the old cottage. And then my mother was in Sligo like she'd broken her hip. And we went over on the Monday night and there was another niece there and she was asking where Duddy was and my niece spoke up and said that she'd hurt her back and she wouldn't be over for a few days. We couldn't think of a way to tell her. So we get up that pretense then till, till the Friday. But she had great faith in a priest at the cross and we thought if we got him to go over and break the news here and we'd all gone then as a year. So that's what we'd done. And she was she was rambling a bit before that, but after that, she was totally clear headed. What did she say? Really the only thing she said was uh what come on him anyway? Did she get over the death, do you think? She died six weeks afterwards. She said she had many as a blow, but that is the worst. But I was in with her one night, and she says, don't you be working too hard to get over this. What did she mean by that? Well, I had started doing a lot of work, like extra work. I was working in a factory in Lithuania at that time, and after it happened, like, uh, I didn't want to go back near it, and then when I got back, I stayed in it, I done a lot of overtime, and that. It wasn't good now. And that's when John Gallagher kind of come into my mind, like, before that, it was just really nan. So entered a twilight life for the Gillespie family. December 1989, Gallagher made his first approach to the courts, claiming that he was no longer insane, and so should be immediately released from the central mental hospital. But he, he never looked any farther ahead than the next court case, a couple of months, two months roughly. For the following six years, John Gallagher would make many more such applications to the courts. Over there, your grand view down into the valley there, but I'm just wet and dirty now. Not. Fonsi wants to show his little granddaughter yes. where he grew up. No. He holds her hand tightly. They walk towards the edge of the field and look down over the fir trees at the valley below. Good. That was nice. Different time, happier times. An old photograph comes to life. Oh, I can't remember, surely there was a photograph taken of them standing down there. My mother, Dodie and Anne, and Dillis, three kids. I can visualise them there, like, lying across, down below there, down with the, with the car for a photograph. 
with the trees in the background. Yeah, it's that time I come out here to do that work, it was September. There's a f- much more open like and there's a lot of wood down there. I thought it was beautiful. And about ten. Red hair. Oh, the red hair. Uh, you'd think going to the graveyard and such would be a help, but it's not, or a comfort, or whatever. I thought the time, like, I should have been able to communicate with them. Never happened. Couldn't make any connection now. I think it's the reason I didn't accept it, like, it was an accident or natural causes or whatever, like, you... Can I accept it? But this was unnatural. I think I felt the loss so much like it that I thought I should have been able to have some feeling, but now you like it. I know it doesn't make sense. But if you mention God, like if there is a God around here after, like I'm sure they're, they're safe. The uncles weren't included in the process, but they weren't left out either. They met the then Minister for Justice, Nora Owen, in the bar of a hotel in Donegal Town. She went away with a mass card of the women. An advisory committee on John Gallagher's detention was established in 1991, consisting of a barrister, a psychiatrist and a GP. The committee monitored and advised on his treatment. The legal challenges stopped. He was quietly given more freedoms. And then, in July of 2000, John Gallagher surprised everyone. John Gallagher left the Central Mental Hospital at midday yesterday for a pre-planned social outing. He was due to return from this unaccompanied parole at 7 o'clock last night. He didn't and up to now he has failed to contact the hospital. Later, that same evening, in Fonsi's car. Well, that's Lefford now. For a while now, People have been telling him that John Gallagher is back in the area, just over the border. There are local newspaper claims that he has been spotted in Lifford. Gardaí are now searching for Gallagher. It's believed his disappearance was pre-planned and sparked by an upcoming review of his detention, which he believed would have denied him release. Drive around the roundabout at Lifford. Third exit takes you over the bridge. 20 seconds later, halfway over the bridge, you are on UK soil in Straban. But there are no guards, no passports, no British soldiers, no way of telling you are crossing a border. Well, you'd have customs there, and sometimes you would have had guards there. 
And then on the other side you had police going into Stavan from this side. As you got in, there was a place called the Camel's Hump. And there'd been a checkpoint there, you could have been taken in by the soldiers or the or the police. All armed. Just another bridge. There's really no difference between north and south. There's no guards, police or soldiers or anything now to stop anyone crossing border north or south. There had been five justice ministers since he had entered Dundrum. None had allowed him to go free. Thames Valley Police said it was with some reluctance that they let John Gallagher go during the early hours of this morning. But they said after consultations with the Director of Public Prosecutions in London, the Garthi in Dublin and psychiatrists here, they had absolutely no powers to hold on to him any longer. They now believe John Gallagher is on his own and in the London area. Fonsi gets out of the car. The problem for them was that under Irish law, a guilty but insane verdict was technically an acquittal. He had therefore committed no crime. The long ago photograph etched on his memory. Gardis say they had sought legal advice to obtain an extradition warrant, but because Gallagher was technically innocent and outside the jurisdiction, no warrant could be issued. Back on Irish soil, we stop off in houses. People tell bits and pieces. Yes, John Gallagher is back in the area. Nobody's happy. When I ask why, they say, what's to stop him doing it again if you cross him? He did it before, didn't he? Despite advice from the Central Mental Hospital in Dublin for Gallagher to return and finish his pre-release programme, the British police said he gave no indication that he'd be going back to Ireland. The Gillespie family live in Ballybuffet. Six minutes' drive from that town is St Patrick's in Killygordon, where the women are buried. Less than 15 minutes away is Lifford, where John Gallagher's parents live and run a business. Dr Charles Smith, who was the medical director of the Central Mental Hospital, has repeated his call to Gallagher to reverse his decision and return to the hospital as soon as possible. Well, his family just live across the bridge and sisters... Ten minutes, maybe. I can go and back. At his pleasure. His mother tells me she doesn't know where he's living. Oh, that is hard to believe. <laughs> I just wouldn't have that now. No, couldn't be. Everything seems to have settled down and be across more regular, I would think. Another evening... Fonsi is at home with his wife, as is Patrick. It's not difficult to find where John Gallagher is living. It takes 20 seconds to drive from the roundabout in Lifford, over the bridge and across the invisible border into Straban, past detached houses with mature gardens. Drive two minutes further to a well-tended small suburban estate. In the driveways are Peugeots, Volvos and BMWs. Children's toys lie on the road outside. The houses are smart, the area neatly landscaped. It is a wet evening, so the estate is quiet. Doors are closed. Images from the World Cup flicker from TV screens. Hi there. I'm looking for Mr Gallagher, please. Anybody here that's, by that name? That's yourself. No, I don't know that name there. John Gallagher. No, I'm sorry. It is. Can I give you this note? 
Mr. Gallagher. From RT Radio, Mr. Gallagher. Through the glass, the shape of a little girl appears. She hits the inside of the front door. Immediately, all blinds are drawn. Despite the denials, it is John Gallagher. Not the baby-faced man in the wedding video. Older, more grizzled, more weight, wearing a football jersey. People say that the PSNI know he's living there, but he's on UK soil, they can do nothing. There seems to be no, no manner of dealing with him. Although nobody seems to be looking for him. I suppose looking at Stabane is a little bit out of it, but I think there could be more cooperation there. The next morning, Fonsi is driving to Killy Gordon Graveyard. He's meeting Patrick there. We're standing here at the grave of Annie and Anne. And then what we've seen of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, have mercy on the soul of Annie and Anne Gillespie, who died on the 18th of September 1988. Rest in peace. This was the final result of John Gallagher's actions on Sligo. And it's the only thing that's left for the family. That's very sad. How far away is it from where John Gallagher lives now? It's within nine miles of Liffey. Yeah. John Gallagher's living in freedom. And these people are, have their lives cut very, very short. Well, Anne-Marie called with him last night. I came to the door. Friendly. She knows who she was. The picture changed, slammed the door in her face, locked it, pulled the blinds. Yeah. Nothing has changed then? Not a bit. That was his attitude from day one, like, you know, 18 years, and his attitude hasn't changed, you know. Now that chapter is closed in the Gallagher's books, unfortunately. It's not closed for the, the Gillespie family, and never will, like, you know. He can turn the leaf and move on as he has done and the rest are left to pick up the pieces. Well, it's never, it's never really ended for us. And it probably won't end until the first generation dies out. I suppose that death is the only way to end, isn't it? No, I can't speak my thoughts. I wanted to go to Sligo that night, but somehow uh, nobody said no, but nobody uh, was still it. Went over then and viewed the remains, but they were just like dummies. Closed the coffin then.
garbage. It wasn't them at all. A complete nutter waste of life. That's all you can say about it, and that's what it was. Like a girl of 18, like a woman in her prime, like you know. It's, um, not here alone, like they're never forgotten in my prayers, like you know, I mean, or in the household prayers, like you know. What do you say at the end of the day, like you know? We talk about it among ourselves, you know, but. I don't really talk to you about it now, to outsiders. Why not? It's not easy. And amongst yourselves, what would you say? Just talking about Gallagher and... Gallagher and Dorian and... The way things used to be. But there's really no comfort anywhere. The men walk away from the black granite tombstone where both bodies lie. A new criminal insanity bill has been signed in. From now, a person could be found not guilty by reason of insanity. For the last nine months, John Gallagher has been living in a hostel on the grounds of the Central Mental Hospital as part of a pre-release programme agreed with the Department of Justice. He had complied fully with all aspects of that programme to date and was being granted increasing levels of freedom in preparation for his eventual discharge. That discharge is now in doubt this evening. Gallagher has broken the terms and he will no longer be allowed to continue on that programme. And in a case like John Gallagher, an independent review committee, not the minister, will decide when a person is fit to be released back into the world. The Central Mental Hospital is both a hostel and a place of detention. And because Gallagher is unlawfully at large from the hospital, Garthy could detain him if he returned to this jurisdiction. Diminished responsibility is introduced. It carries a mandatory life sentence. This option didn't exist before now. This bill has no retrospective powers for the Gillespie family. In the wedding video, there is a time when Anne is finally smiling. It's the only time I see her without John Gallagher and the only time she smiles. She looks more relaxed now. She's standing next to the young man she has just been dancing with, but she is beckoning at some unseen person, waving her hand, laughing mouthing at that person to come out and join her. Perhaps the smiles are for her beloved mother. A week later, both of them would be dead. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.